It's great to be with you again, and I would invite you back to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. Mark, chapter 6, and we're going to look tonight at verses 14 through 29, and then a little later, the passage of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And that won't make us hungry because we'll have already eaten, so it works out just, just fine. A few years ago, uh, Costi Hinn, I don't know if you've heard that name before, but he is the nephew of the famous prosperity preacher and faith healer Benny Hinn. Costi uh, described the lifestyle of the Hinn family. And in an article that appeared in Christianity Today, he wrote this. Prosperity theology paid amazingly well. We lived in a 10,000-square-foot mansion guarded by a private gate, drove two Mercedes-Benz vehicles, vacationed in exotic destinations, shopped at the most expensive stores. On top of that, we bought a $2 million ocean view home in California where another Benz joined the fleet. We were serving Jesus Christ and living the abundant life he promised. Costi Hinn then described their approach to ministry. He said this, Though Jesus Christ was still part of our gospel, he was more of a magic genie than the king of kings. Rubbing him the right way by giving money and having enough faith would unlock your spiritual inheritance. God's goal was not his glory, but our gain. His grace was not to set us free from sin, but to make us rich. The abundant life he offered wasn't eternal, it was now. And of course, that raises the question, is material prosperity and the so-called good life what we should expect for following Jesus? Well, Costi Hinn came to the conclusion that the answer to that question is an emphatic no. He came to see how unbiblical the prosperity gospel truly is. And he said, no longer did I believe that God's purpose was to make me happy, healthy and wealthy. Instead, I saw that he wanted me to live for him regardless of what I could get from him. Now, if serving Jesus results in luxury and prosperity, the main character in our passage today, John the Baptist, didn't get the memo. Mark's gospel begins in chapter 1 with John the Baptist, and we learn that John was the prophesied forerunner to the Messiah. Uh, Mark 1.4 says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And as chapter 1 describes him, we learn that, that John wasn't clothed in designer suits. He, he wore camel's hair. He didn't eat at the finest restaurants. He ate bugs, essentially. But he understood his role to call people to repentance and to point them to Jesus Christ as the coming Messiah. And he was faithful to that calling. As Jesus began his ministry, as Jesus appeared on the scene, you remember in John chapter 1, that famous scene where Jesus appears and John declares, Behold the Lamb of God who uh, takes away the sin of the world. Uh, as Jesus then appears, John begins to fade from the picture. And in Mark chapter 1, 14, we learn that John was arrested. 
So whatever happened to John the Baptist? Today's passage in Mark 6 tells us the tragic story. Let's read our passage, Mark 6, 14 through 29. Verse 14. King Herod heard of it, the, 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 the mission of the disciples that we read about last night. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's once again pause for prayer. Father, we confess that this is a rather gruesome story, a tragic tale, and yet it is included in, in the, the Word of God for our instruction. And so we pray once again that you would teach us from this passage and that you would uh, give us ears to hear, that you would resolve our desire to live for the Lord Jesus and follow him come what may. So be with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we saw uh, that Jesus extended his ministry by sending out the twelve and they preached in his name and even cast out demons and healed the sick by the authority that Jesus had given them. But before Mark completes the story, that story of, of the disciples mission, which he'll pick up again briefly in verse 30, he inserts this account of John the Baptist. Why does Mark do that? Is there any connection between the mission of the 12 and the fate of John the Baptist, Jesus' forerunner? 
Well, I think both episodes illustrate the nature and cost of discipleship. Commentator Mark Strauss puts it this way. The twelve are commissioned to set aside their possessions, comfort, and personal ambitions to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. John the Baptist, meanwhile, pays the ultimate cost of discipleship, giving his life in faithfulness to his calling. And that's really the lesson of our passage. That faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ is sometimes very costly. Now, in the opening uh, three verses of our passage, we really are, are dealing with the uncertainty of Jesus' identity. And that will then lead to a, a flashback of the events that led to the execution of John the Baptist. So first of all, in verses 14 through 16, who is Jesus? Word about Jesus and his powerful teaching, his mighty works was already spreading throughout Galilee and and beyond. And now with the mission of the disciples, news was getting around even more. Rumors and debates and questions about Jesus were everywhere to the point that it even came to the attention of Herod. Now, just to clarify... Uh, The Herod referred to here in our passage is Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, who ruled Israel under Rome. There are actually four Herods mentioned in the New Testament, so it can get a little confusing. Herod the Great, we remember from the Christmas story, um, he was the one the wise men met after the birth of Jesus in Matthew 2. He was also the one who ordered the execution of the male children in Bethlehem in an attempt to to kill Jesus, whom he viewed as as a threat. When Herod the Great died, his territory was divided among some of his sons, included Herod Antipas, the one described here in, in Mark 6. Antipas's title was actually Tetrarch, Uh, of the provinces of Galilee and Perea. Tetrarch means a ruler of of a fourth part of Palestine. But as verse 14 indicates, he was known as king in Galilee, and actually that's the title that he preferred for himself. Now notice in verses 14 through 16 that, that it was the growing reputation of Jesus that, um, that uh, made all these uh, questions about about Jesus and all the the rumors that were being spread and and passed around about Jesus that that stirred Herod's uneasy conscience. Some were saying Jesus was a great prophet. Others thought he was Elijah. And, of course, there is prophecy in Malachi that Elijah would come and many Jews expected Elijah be, to return before uh, Judgment Day. There's, there's actually a tradition that continues even today when the Jews celebrate Passover. They leave a, a, an empty chair at the table and um, they call it Elijah's chair. And they place a, a glass of wine at the table before that, that chair. And at one point... They will go and open the door, um, hoping that Elijah will come in with the long-awaited news that Messiah has come. Well, in fact, Jesus will identify John the Baptist as that Elijah 
who was to be the forerunner to the Messiah and the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. But the view that really haunted Herod, who who is Jesus, the view that haunted Herod was the one stated in verse 14. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And on hearing that suggestion, Herod's convinced that's got to be it. That's got to be it. He he probably thought John's ghost is back in Jesus and he's here to haunt me. Herod is really showing classic signs of a troubled conscience. He knows that he killed John unjustly. And now John's coming for him. But even here in these verses 14 through 16, Mark, the gospel writer, is pressing on his readers once again the central question of the book. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And even today, people say similar things as was being uh, bantied about back in the first century. People today will say, well, he was a great moral teacher. Others will say, yes, he was some kind of a prophet. But as we encounter the Lord Jesus Christ in, in Scripture, in the Gospel of Mark, in the Word of God, Jesus shatters all of our categories. He doesn't fit any of those suggestions. He is... He's, He's so much more than than just Elijah. He's more than just another prophet. He's more than just a great moral teacher. Uh, He is more than John the Baptist. And Mark wants us to conclude as he walks us through episode after after episode, revealing the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is he is unlike anyone else. He is unique. He is the Christ. He is the son of God. Herod thinks, however, that he's John the Baptist. So that leads to the question, whatever happened to John the Baptist? Again, we learn in chapter 114 that John had been arrested. And now we discover the story behind it and the tragic tale of John's execution. Herod arrested John, had him thrown in prison. But why? Why? Well, it comes down to this. John had dared to confront Herod with his sin. Look at John's confrontation in verses 17 through 20. Verse 17, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Specifically, verse 18, notice how it's worded. John had been saying to Herod, John had been saying to Herod, apparently John was saying this repeatedly to Herod. He wasn't letting Herod off the hook. And apparently he said it to his face. That took courage. What did he say repeatedly? 
and directly to Herod. He said, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, as you would imagine, there is a messy story behind this confrontation, and it really is a sordid one. Herod Antipas put away his first wife in order to marry Herodias, who was married to Antipas's half-brother, Herod Philip. Follow that? Apart from the adultery in this, the Mosaic law did not allow a man to marry his brother's wife, except in the case of Leverite marriage, when the brother had died without offspring. Well, certainly that was not the case here. Herod had actually enticed his sister-in-law to leave his brother and marry him. Now, something of a side note, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, Herod Antipas's first wife, who he had divorced, was the daughter of King Artus IV of Nabati. Now, I know that sounds like Star Wars characters, but it's actual history. And when Herod divorced her and married Herodias, King Artus went to war with Herod and defeated his army in battle. And many believed that Herod's defeat was punishment from God for executing John the Baptist. But there's more to the story. Herodias was actually Herod's niece. She was the daughter of another half-brother. So this marriage was also an incestuous one. No wonder John condemned it. And that's significant in itself, because John was not afraid to to confront those in places of power who could do what eventually happened to him. That didn't hold John back from confronting them. John was was a faithful prophet. And uh, you'll remember in Matthew's account, Matthew chapter three, verse seven, says that when he saw when he was out baptizing in the wilderness, he saw the hypocritical leaders of the day coming towards him, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come when you show no signs of repentance. John didn't hold back. He was faithful to the calling. He was faithful to proclaim the word of God, to call people to repentance in preparation for the arrival of the Messiah. Didn't matter if you were a cobbler or a king. John's prophetic role didn't change. Frederick Dale Bruner puts it, John did not temper his words in the presence of the mighty. And that ended up costing him his life. It's interesting, isn't it, in light of uh, our own culture and our own day, that John lost his life ultimately for defending the sanctity of marriage? How relevant is that for our time? Now, I'm not suggesting that we adopt the same confrontational approach that John was called to, although maybe there are times when that is appropriate for us. The church ought to have a prophetic voice into our culture. But I think we have a lot to learn and admire and, and, and take from, from John's integrity and his refusal to compromise the truth of God's word. We ought to get our convictions from the word of God. There's so many ideas that come at us uh, all the time. So many false ideas that are so contrary to the word of God. 
the popular trends of culture can be very influential. And so it's essential that that we stand on the authority of the word of God, that we get our convictions and hold them with integrity, even when there's pressure to compromise. I think we see John the Baptist as a model of that for us. Now, in saying that, I don't intend to sound triumphalistic or morally superior, which is often how Christians are heard when they they try to take a stand. We ought to hold to the authority of Scripture in an uncompromising way, but also in a humble way. Because this is the good word of our good creator. And and that's why ultimately we hold to the authority of, of God's word. His ways are always best for us. He has designed us. He knows what's best for human flourishing. And it's when we reject his ways when we follow our own sinful desires, that we end up on the path of destruction. And that's exactly what we see in Herod. Herod was undone by his own sensuality, his own pride. That's what led him to seduce his sister-in-law and niece. And that's what led him to make such a foolish vow to his stepdaughter at his birthday party, which ends essentially in murder. But before we get to the party, look at the response of Herodias, Herod's new wife, to the preaching of John the Baptist. Verse 19. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. Herodias, in many ways, reminds us of the Old Testament story of Jezebel, who desired to kill the prophet Elijah because he confronted the idolatry that Jezebel loved so much. Herodias hated John for not keeping quiet and for exposing her sin for what it really was. In reality, Herodias hated God and his ways, and she directed that hatred towards the messenger and wanted to kill him. As T.W. Mason put it, Herodias felt that the only place where her marriage certificate could safely be written was on the back of the death warrant of John the Baptist. Herodias was cold and calculating, willing to, to bide her time for the right opportunity. And when that opportunity came, she was willing to sacrifice the honor of her own daughter to achieve her wicked scheme. She doesn't emerge as an admirable character in this story. Now, as we reflect on that, we might not take such drastic, obvious steps as Herodias, but we ought to be on guard against our sinful tendency to want to silence and suppress and even eliminate the word of God when it confronts us in our sin. We... uh, Uh, as elders at our assembly dealt with an issue where we attempted to confront someone who was uh, just living uh, in a way that was in violation to what she had claimed to hold to, the authority of the word of God. And yet when we confronted her, she twisted things so much that it was clear that she had closed her ears She had shut her eyes willfully. She did not want to hear it. She did not want to see it. And she could only 
justify her ways. How often are we like that? Maybe more subtly. But the Proverbs teach us that the path of wisdom, the path of life is actually to welcome correction. Not try to get rid of it. Are we humble enough? Do we love the truth enough to welcome the one who corrects us? That's not easy. It's not easy to attempt to correct one another in humility. It's really hard to receive it. But it's the path of wisdom. Herod's response is interesting. He actually tried to keep John safe from the intentions of his wife. Apparently he was aware of her intentions. Verse 20 says that he, he recognized that John was a righteous and a holy man, and that made him afraid to do anything to him. There's power in a holy life. It seems that Herod's conscience was being stirred even by John's life. And certainly when John confronted him, Herod's conscience was being stirred by listening to John. Again, verse 20 says, very um, interesting kind of statement. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. What an interesting statement. Herod was, you picture a man who was torn. There was something real and compelling about John the Baptist and his, even his preaching and his message to Herod. There was something that, that Herod was drawn to in that. Here was someone speaking the truth of God into his life. And Herod at one level could recognize that, but it greatly perplexed him. He was at a loss. His conscience was pricked, but not enough. In the end, he feared he'd have to give up too much. And so he did nothing about his soul. I'm reminded of Benjamin Franklin's admiration of the great 18th century evangelist George Whitfield. Franklin found Whitfield fascinating. He, he would go and listen to him preach. He would even publish his sermons he was impressed by Whitfield's eloquence, and the two actually became friends. And Whitfield regularly urged Franklin, the deist, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Franklin wrote, he used to indeed sometimes pray for my conversion, but he never had the satisfaction of believing that his prayers were heard. How tragic. Reminds us of the time in Acts 24 when Paul testified before Governor Felix. You remember in Acts 24:25, the NIV renders it this way. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. Of course, he never found it convenient. I wonder if there's anyone here this evening like like Herod, like Benjamin Franklin, like Felix. Maybe at one level you're, you're drawn to the message of Scripture. But at the end of the day, you really don't want to respond to it. You really don't want to embrace it. You think that you'd have to give up too much. Actually, you'd have to give up everything 
You have to die to yourself. But what you gain far exceeds anything that you might lose. And this is precisely um, Jesus' point in Mark 8, which Lord willing we'll look at tomorrow. You remember Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But then he adds these all important words for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it and save it for eternity. Yes, there is a cost of following Jesus as John the Baptist's life shows. But what you gain, what you gain is true life, a redeemed life, eternal life, and the enjoyment of the glory of Christ forever, which is the answer to the deepest longings that you've ever had. Those can only be satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me urge you, don't be like Herod. Don't waver. Don't sit on the fence. Give your life to Christ and find not health and wealth, but peace for your troubled conscience. That's what Herod needed. Forgiveness for your sins. Relief from your guilt. And eternal life in Jesus Christ. Well, meanwhile, in our story, Herodias was biding her time. And now her chance came. And so we come to Herodias' revenge. Verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish. And I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. So the opportunity for Herodias comes during this birthday party. It was a big bash, to be sure. Uh, All the important people were there. And although the text doesn't say so, I think it's pretty safe to assume that the wine was flowing very, very freely. As part of the evening's entertainment, Herodias' daughter came out to dance. Josephus tells us her name was Salome. Now, we can only guess what kind of dance performance would prompt a drunken Herod to promise her up to half of his kingdom. Notice what we read in verse 24. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. What a wicked scheme this is. Here's a woman so full of hatred against a prophet who dared to expose her sin that she gives her probably teenage daughter to perform for drunken men at a party in hopes that it will lead to an opportunity to kill the prophet who spoke against her. She then involves her daughter in murder, and the daughter, for her part, seems willing enough to play her part. The mother asks for John the Baptist. Salome asks for it on a platter, and right now, You can picture the scene. 
Suddenly the laughter stops. The room grows silent. All eyes are on Herod. Again, you can picture him cringe at Salome's words and drop his head. Of course, he could have done the right thing and admitted that he made a a foolish promise that he couldn't possibly keep. But he was not a man of moral courage. He wanted to save face before the important people, before his guests, and his folly and sin had now trapped him. And although he knew it was wrong, and verse 26 says he was exceedingly sorry, he'd rather be head a prophet than lose his pride before his guests. What a tragic choice. But not altogether unlike one people make today. Kent Hughes puts it this way. How many people's consciences have been awakened to eternal things and their own sinful plight, and yet they have buried it all because of what they feared their friends or family or spouse or fellow students would think? It might be said that John was a man who kept his conscience and lost his head. Herod was a man who took John's head and lost his conscience. And as a result, this whole story indicates, as, as it's really a reflection on these events, that Herod had no peace. He couldn't escape the reality of his guilt. It haunted him. It seems to have hardened him in the end. The last mention of Herod Antipas is in Luke chapter 23, hours before the death of Christ. Pilate had sent Jesus over to Herod. Actually, just turn quickly over to Luke 23 and see this episode. Luke chapter 23 and verse 6. Pilate had found no guilt in Jesus and uh, um, uh, verse 5, but they were urgent saying, He stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod, that's our Herod Antipas, Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he, that is Jesus, made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Think of that. Here, Herod stood face to face with Jesus Christ. And all he hoped for was to see a few tricks. Jesus recognized Herod's hardened heart and he refused to speak to him. It was too late. His conscience was seared. His guilt had deafened him to spiritual truth. His ears would no longer listen. Herod ends up mocking the Son of God and treating him with contempt. 
This whole account, Mark chapter six, and where Mark chooses to place it in the in the narrative shows us that the path of true discipleship is one of self-denial, self-sacrifice. John, who is the forerunner to Christ, is also, in a sense, the forerunner to Jesus' death. Commentators have actually pointed out some interesting parallels between the death of John and, and the death of Jesus. For example, when one puts it this way, both John and Jesus are executed by political tyrants who fear them, but vacillate and finally succumb to social pressure. But of course, John's death and Jesus' death are, are also very different. And while we admire John's faithfulness unto death, only Jesus' death saves us. John himself again testified that, that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And after John's death, there were rumors that he had risen from the dead, but only Jesus rose from the dead triumphantly. But John has much, again, to teach us about what it means to follow Jesus faithfully. His life was not one of prosperity and luxury. He suffered. He sacrificed in the service of Jesus Christ. And yet, and yet, that was ultimately contributing to John's joy. It seems unfair to us as we read this account that such a faithful man would experience such an unjust imprisonment and execution. But as J.C. Ryle, the 19th century preacher, put it, he said of John the Baptist, his rest, his crown, his wages, his reward are all on the other side of the grave. And this account reminds us that in this world we will have tribulation as we seek to follow Jesus Christ faithfully. But the best is yet to come. And this is something that, for example, the Apostle Paul kept before him every day. He said, Paul said, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And therefore he kept preaching. He kept following Jesus. And yet, and yet, we also have to say that even in this life, John's joy was the glory of Christ. He said, you remember in John chapter three, these famous, wonderful words, he said of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. And if you follow that passage, when people were leaving John uh, to go to Jesus and the disciples were a little concerned about that is John's disciples were concerned of this and, and they brought it to John saying, hey, everyone's leaving you and going to Jesus. And John's response was to say, yeah, I'm not getting the recognition I deserve. No, he said, this joy of mine is now complete. People are going to Jesus. That's why I was called to send them to Jesus. John teaches us very important lessons about the cost of discipleship. Faithfulness to Jesus sometimes is very costly. But he also shows us that following Jesus, come what may, is the path to eternal joy. 
That's why the prosperity gospel is such a false gospel. Jesus is the magic genie that will make us rich. But the but the true disciple who has experienced and encountered the saving love and the transforming grace of our Lord Jesus Christ says. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Let's pray. Father, how we need the perspective of your word. And even in this difficult story about John the Baptist. We see the, the great value of keeping Jesus at the center and following him despite the cost, despite the sacrifices that might come our way. We pray that you would give us the courage and the integrity that we see in John the Baptist. Give us steel in our spines to stand with Jesus in a in a in a perverse generation in which we find ourselves and yet also give us the joy and compassion that we see manifested in the Lord Jesus himself. People were like sheep without a shepherd. Help us to have such confidence in Jesus and joy in him that like John, we have our joy in pointing others to him. So help us, we pray. Thank you for the lessons of your word. Continue with us this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.